Hello, I am Jason Hobbs, and today I have two of my friends with me. One is Eric Hoffman. Hello, Eric. Why are you talking like that? (laughs) We knew that wouldn't last. (laughs) Hey. And the other is Jose Licario. Hello, Jose. Hey there, Jason. (laughs) It seems like we have a very serious show planned for you all, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but this is Hex Talk. (laughs) What have I won, Wink? All right. Hey, everyone. We are uh, really excited to be getting this show going. We've been working diligently hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month to make this the best possible hex talk that could ever be. Isn't that right, Eric? Definitely. Done nothing else. Jose, we uh, went through some different ideas about what we were going to do with hex talk. Do you want to talk about why the fuck we're doing it? Yeah, um, basically, uh, why we're doing Hex Talk, it, it, it was a popular show that uh, spun off from your uh, Hobbs and Friends of the OSR, and uh, we thought it would be a nice platform for us to continue talking about uh, Hex Rules and as a showcase for a place to talk about our Forlorn Shores campaign. Um, and we've been, of course, working for months and months hiring teams of technicians and and engineers and designers from pretty much worldwide to get this started that's why it's taken so long yeah we had to find the funds first by selling all of our osr gear no that's not true but near the uh some time ago on hobbs and friends i said that we would take emails and so i actually have an email from last year in september from the mysterious cody m about hex talks so i thought we would start off the show uh by talking about cody's questions is that all right with you eric I I give my approval, both verbal and written. (laughs) Hey, Jason, just wanted to let you know that I've been really enjoying the Hex Talk podcast, and it's really helped me in running my own games. Lots of really solid nuggets of advice in each episode so far. I do have a few questions that I'm hoping you can help me out with, though. Cody M, we're going to be happy to help you out. And uh, here is your first question. How often are you rolling to see if there's a random encounter in the wilderness? So, Eric, we have uh, actually had this question a few different times, I think, and even people have posted it to the Hobbs and Friends community. Uh, you got any advice for a Cody M here? Uh, yeah. First of all, I would take issue because uh, I know Cody and he's never ran more than one session of any game. So I, I, I don't know what he's looking Rock for. NATO. for. Uh, usually the, the rock NATOs end it. But um, uh, but yeah, so uh, so I guess the answer is it depends. Right. Um, we're not talking about although we use a specific rule system for our game. Um, you can be using any rule system to do a hex crawl. So I, I'd look there for guidance. If you're using rules as written BX or um, AD and D or whatever that happens to be. First of all, um, the second thing is that I, I don't do checks per day in the wilderness. Um, so when I'm doing hex crawls, especially exploration style, I actually break it down by hex. So I do a check every hex. Now, obviously there's less chance um, necessarily because that's a lot more rolls per day usually, but um that's the way I like to do it. And I really got that idea by taking the uh, 
uh, a hex map as a as a dungeon. I say this on <laughs> every episode of Hex Talk so far, so I'll say it again. Um, a hex crawl is really just a dungeon where every room has six exits, right? So, and, and going by that, then I just looked at like the um, how to generate a dungeon in Molpe, um, and, and there's a role, right? Nothing, trap, monster, or special. And, and so that's kind of how I've set up all of my, it's obviously more detailed than that and goes by region by region. Um, so the answer is uh, none um, for me, but um, you certainly can do whatever, right? Um, and one of the, the things that like nugget that I would give as a suggestion is it depends on the area too, right? I mean, if you're going across a relatively civilized area, maybe once per day, and if you're in the Mirkwood where the goblins and dragons or goblins and spiders live and maybe a giant, then, um, you know, you roll four times a day. So it, it depends. Your hexes are six mile hexes when you talk about it. So like if you have one mile hexes, checking every time you go into the hex, maybe a little overkill. I kind of just play it by ear, really, which is what I think you are saying. Get yeah. some experience yep. and get some background information from like Moldvay or something else that you prefer or think that is a good example but then yeah if, if they're yeah but be consistent right i mean the my, the whole the, my whole goal when i'm when and we'll talk about this a little bit later my whole goal when designing how i'm doing my thing is um is to have a consistent world for the players to adventure in where they um they can be immersive in the areas that they're in but also emergent in that so that i'm surprised and things can happen that I didn't necessarily plan ahead of time for it. And I think planning ahead of time, how many times you're going to roll per day is a good thing to do. And then keep it consistent so that the players feel that they're in a dangerous area or they feel that they're in a relatively safe area and then, and then keep that. And if it changes, then that becomes part of the story, right? It's not just, right. You're, you forgot to do it today or, or you don't, don't have any consistency and um, you forgot what you did last time and you're doing it differently this time. And I think that's, that's kind of, I don't like to be too strict about anything when in, the, in a game, right? We're all here to have fun, but, but where I do get more strict with myself, I guess, as a GM is, is setting those rules ahead of time and sticking to them. And if I break them, there's a good reason why. And I think players appreciate that, even if they don't notice it, it gives it allows them to have buy in into the campaign. Right. Exactly. I mean, we're playing a very procedurally created or based game. And if you're willy nilly with the procedures, then the game is going to be missing. And, and part of the reason that people got away from bx type games and moved into story games because the too much gm control and if that gm control was arbitrary and didn't have these procedures and consistency to those procedures it's going to make it feel like you know that they have no control whatsoever and it's just whatever on a whim whenever the gm feels like doing something he does it then that could have some issues so um jose do you have uh, anything to add about this or uh no i'm i'm pretty much uh in the same camp as the two of you i uh I actually have my charts are uh, percentile based, uh, a throwback from my 1E, 2E days. And then I'm using a D20 uh, for resolution for random encounters. But in the wilderness, I'm, I'm, I'm similar. I'm not doing a lot. I'm doing them in a kind of a watch basis where uh, maybe once or twice a day in most areas. And I vary the chance for an encounter based on the area. So even if I'm only checking once or twice a day, if you're in an area known for more uh, more danger or a less civilized area, the chance for an encounter is going to be higher. And there's also not just random encounters as in monsters, there's random encounters as in uh, you could have an environmental encounter, you could have a weather encounter, there's uh, it could be more of a benign encounter where it's more of an omen type thing. So there's a lot of things you're going to find that aren't just you see a monster. Um, I've got other little charts for finding 
other things to keep it uh, to keep the players discovering more about my setting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, well, hopefully we'll get into that design stuff later. Um, but I totally, uh, obviously we're on the same page with this. So let's go on to Cody's second question. What do you do with downtime in town? So <laughs> I'm going to talk about this briefly in, uh, Kalmata or, um, in, uh, keep on the borderlands. I think that we got away from the West March's idea a little bit and had some stuff going on in town that actually kept players in town. And there were reasons for that. And I think there still are in those ongoing campaigns. Uh, but if you're going to have a real West March's game, you don't want to have anything going on in town anyway. Eric, what do you think about, uh, about Cody's question? Um, so I, I think it depends on the kind of campaign you're running. If you're running just kind of a standard D and D campaign where the story just follows the one party around, there's not, not open table, not West marches. Then, um, if you fleshed out your town, then yeah, you should have stuff happen there for sure. Um, in the keep on the borderlands campaign that I ran for, we all played and I ran for a lot of years. I had, um, at the beginning of every session, I rolled to see what was going on in the keep and, I never updated that list. So after three and a half years, like there was like a hundred fires, 70 runaway horses. Right. But I had 20 things that could be happening. Um, the green Knight came and challenged everyone. And I think no one ever accepted in three and a half years, but I had like these, like gypsies would come and, um, or there was a holiday. So nobody could buy anything. And, uh, there was stuff like that happening. Um, and there's lots of great products out there that have tons of these ideas. And, um, I just was reading, um, the latest thing by Kabuki Kaiser, um, the dragon boat race one mm -hmm. flower liches. And uh, I forget the exact title, but it's awesome. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's really good. I really like all his stuff. And he's got like some great things in there about what could be going on, like weird stuff. And I think that's always a good idea. If you're going to have a home base city and there's going to be downtime there. Um, I, I actually, in the game, the forlorn shores we're running now, we've done away with that, right? It's really true West marches where nothing happens in town, but except carousing. Right. Because isn't that kind of downtime carousing tables? Yeah. Yeah. But even those are really they're gamified. Right. It's not it's not a session. It's like this is what happens. And maybe you get a save or something, but it's not like a role playing. It's not like you're playing your character. Right. This is just what happens to you more like like the um, like in Conan. Right. He's in a he, he's in a situation because of something happening in carousing. And that's kind of the way this a lot of the stories start. Right. It's you don't yeah. get to play and choose if you're going to do that thing or not. Once you spent the golden roll to die, it, it, it's happening to you, whether you want it to or not. Yeah. And we can talk about that when we start talking about our individual design choices about the Forlorn Shores. Uh, do you have anything specific that you wanted to add about this, uh, Jose, about this downtime question? No, I, I agree. Uh, we we use the. Uh carousing tables pretty much. And we're pretty much on the, uh, the bandwagon of town being a hand waved thing and using the adventure as the driving focus. So just the same as we'll talk about and again, later we'll talk about the design. We use a, a chart for, uh, travel to and from our locations. We use a chart for, uh, town stuff. So uh, it keeps all that stuff nice and short so that we can get right to the meat of the adventuring. All right. So, Cody M who is Cody Maza. And if there's any last bit of advice, I would say, uh, cut your hair, dude, because that shit is out of control. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for sending an email in. And, uh, hopefully we'll have an email specific to hex talk, uh, when we get to the end of the show during the outro. And if anyone wants to send any emails, we'd love to do it. And I think we're going to try and maybe do one email a show. 
but hopefully it doesn't take this long because damn, the show's like uh, more than a quarter over already. Just because of you, Cody. Good job. Anyway. Uh, we love you, Cody. <laughs> the next thing we wanted to mention is, I guess, more about why we're doing this. And obviously people have been asking me continuously about when we were doing Hex Talk again. For us, we weren't exactly sure. <laughs> we were just talking about this pre-show, weren't we, that even Hex Talk 4 was kind of a question for us, which is actually the show that got sent in and got nominated for an any. We weren't even sure what we would talk about about Hex Talks again, uh, but we did because people asked for it. So it took us nine months to come up with it. So I guess what was our answer, Jose? I mean, do you want to fill people in? I can. Yeah, basically, our answer was Forlorn Shores. Um, you know, there was obviously still people clamoring for the show. They enjoyed it. Uh, apparently, we were either entertaining enough or gave them enough information for them to want to listen. Uh, but the question was, what can we on a continuing basis provide that would make for an entertaining show? And I think the answer that we all came up with was this shared hex crawl setting where we take some of the concepts and take some of the things that we've discussed on the show and actually put them into practice. Um, let people play it. There's, there's, you know, our friends and people out there on the internet are playing it and then see how it works, come back and give you information on how it works. And, uh, and that that's going to provide a lot of the meat for the show. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And Eric, do you want to uh, maybe give a, a slightly more in depth, but still broad idea to the listeners, what <laughs> forlorn shores is make it general, but focused yeah. <laughs> yeah, two keep minutes your distance, but don't look like you're keeping your distance. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm lost now. Uh, yeah, so I think the thing was is that people kept asking uh, about more hex talk, and I, we never really intended it to be four episodes on Hobbs and Friends. And every after every episode, we were like, "Well, what are we talking?" We thought we covered it, so but apparently we didn't. Um, so either we're not doing our job well, or um, or, or maybe I don't know, people just think we have more to say. So we were really trying to figure out what that could be, and actual play came up and I, I pretty much vetoed that. Um, I think those are stupid. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can't imagine sitting and listening to, uh, to people play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, some people like it though. I mean, they're pretty popular, but um, so we kind of settled on um, a compromise of, of instead of actual play podcast or video cast or whatever, we do actual play reports where we would take, we'd actually run the game. Um, we talk about design decisions we made, game decisions that were made um, specifically around um, hex crawls and, and hex talk in the campaign. And then we'd each take a part of the campaign world so that we could do it, do those things in different ways, then come back and talk about what happened when, when people actually went and played in that. It's not just us pontificating theory and, you know, someone's actually going to go and get their hands dirty and play this game and then talk about the results, uh, the decisions we made, how they turned out, what players thought of them, have players on the show um, to give their opinion on, you know, like why Jose's games are always bad and mine are always great. And then we could try and dissect that and figure out why aside from Hanson. Right. If you, uh, if you want to travel into Eric's Mirkwood, then <laughs> I can see. <laughs> isn't that where, isn't that where Harry and Ron crash that flying car? <laughs> I, I think it is, but it's way preferable to Jose's creeping wood. So, <laughs> I just stay away from wood in general, personally. But so one of the problems that we have, and we haven't we haven't figured out a lot of the things uh, that kind of surround the game. We've played like I think you said seven sessions, maybe maybe more so far of different GMs, and um, 
we're considering how to recruit people. So you guys email us or for now, I guess we're just going to use the Hobbs and Friends community for Hex Talk still. Maybe we'll make a Hex Talk community, but I'm not I'm not sure if we need to, I guess. I don't know. We'll, we'll figure all that out. Uh, but we uh, are working on a Discord channel and we'll have that in the show notes. And like I say, we may have another G plus community, but if you're interested in playing, you know, you can send uh, Twitters. I think Jose has got a Twitter feed. We'll make a hex talk Twitter though, uh, that we can all use. And uh, I guess that's it. That's the introduction for this. We don't have a ton of time. We're going to try and keep it to similar to Hobbs and friends where we're going to do 40 minutes uh, and not an hour and a half, which we could easily do, especially in these early sessions. But so the aspect of design design that we want to talk about with forlorn shores first is kind of, I guess, how we created our, our regions. And, um, I guess we'll go with you first, Jose, like, what was your, do you have like some initial design thoughts or what went into you creating your region for forlorn shores? Um, I was sitting around one day I was watching uh, TV and Lawrence of Arabia came on. So I was like, I want deserts. So I sent, uh, I sent Eric a message. I said, when you make forlorn shores, I need deserts, at least two kinds. And there you go. That's how my region was built. But no, I, I really wanted to do uh, a desert region. And I wanted because I have some ideas in my head about doing uh, ziggurats and uh, kind of like burial mounds and tying them all together. So I wanted a nice uh, kind of a shore area that led into a desert region. And Eric made a really nice because um, Eric did all of the maps for us. We basically told him kind of what we wanted. And then he built the entire map and tied our regions together. Uh, he, he made me a nice desert region that's kind of uh, encapsulated by a mountainous area uh, and it's perfect for my needs. And, and I put all my stuff in there. All right. So, Eric, what about you? You want to talk about <laughs> you? Like Jose said, for me, Eric made the big map and I've just I asked for my individual question, which was more like evergreen marshes and uh, moors is what I wanted to do. And Eric, like I say, did all the maps. So Jose and I had it very easy to start with. And Eric, do you want to talk about maybe your initial design thoughts on making the map and how you did your region? And then maybe we can go into more depth if we want to. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my work was made a lot easier because I used a, a program called Hexographer, which is by Inkwell Ideas, which I think most people are familiar with by now. But if you're not, you should be. It's really awesome. Um, Joe Wetzel, I think is his name, is the guy who does that. And it's been out there for great. There's a free version you can get. You can pay for the premium version. Um, he says worldographer and dungeonographer now to go on top of it. But, um, but that's what I used. I set him some parameters and created a, uh, randomized map. And then I went in and fine tuned it pretty heavily based on what we each wanted to do. And we came up with really a MacGuffin of, um, there's this, um, uh, city that's been established in a new area that's recently discovered. Although people have lived there previously, it's kind of like a new world type of scenario. Like, uh, uh, Europeans found the Americas type of deal. Uh, and each of us cut that up and took an area of it. Uh, my area happens to be um, kind of an island off away from the, the, the little island. That city you start with is a pretty big island. And, um, you know, I used my, like I've talked about on here before, really heavily procedurally generated um, wilderness uh, rules. So I spent most of my time developing those rules. The order of events, I broke down uh, the standard movement for all characters in Moldvay into movement points, um, which is really just dividing by five and, and, and then applying that to different terrain. So I, I spent most of my time doing that. And then I broke my island up into, I think, 11 different regions, something like that. Um, 
and named them all and kind of in my head gave them a feel of what's going on there at a high level and then created a, a wandering encounter table for that area. And so the way that I run it is that each time uh, the party goes into a hex, I roll a d12 and it tells me what's going on there. Either nothing, a hazard, a wandering monster, a hazard and a wandering monster, a monster lair or an adventure locale. I cobbled together mostly my own stuff, but some other just stuff I like to use, Dyson logo stuff, some one-page dungeons, and uh, a bunch of barrows from Great Gillespie's Barrow Maze, or my own that I created based off of his ideas, and those are the small adventure locales. Um, I dropped down two known dungeons that the players could visit that I had previously created, and, and that was really it. Most of the work went into giving the um, the regions their unique feel, and then as I was developing that, really just stuff started started coming, and um, and so I have a two d six encounters for each region, and within those you can have unique encounters, you can have just regular wandering monsters out of BX. Those could be the layers of those monsters, um, if you kind of reference the role before it, um, and then I created a relationship role. So. Um, what are the monsters doing? It's just a D6. They're traveling, resting, hunting, working, fighting, or, or strange. Not that they're strange, that something strange is going on. And then a relationship role. So if you roll two, you know, what are they doing to each other? And it can get really strange then, right? And, and that was it. Like that was, so it was a lot of work, I guess, but I only have to do it one time. And it really has provided some really interesting stuff already in the few sessions, which haven't been very exploration focused. Um, so far, and that's the kind of the beauty of the of the of the hex crawl is that all the work you put into designing like one dungeon that the players roll through in a session, or worse yet, decide not to go to, um, you put that in in this upfront work, which sounds like a lot, but once you do it, you only have to do it one time. You fine tune it, you do some maintenance on it as you go along, but it's the gift that keeps on giving, and that's that's where I decided to spend most of my time because I knew I wasn't going to have time to develop dungeon after dungeon after dungeon for players to to go and explore. Yeah, and I think I used a lot of what you'd already created. We have, um, I think it was an interesting choice in the beginning how to get to our individual regions where maybe we'll go into this deeper, I don't know, but I think we should mention it right now, where basically you have a ship that'll take you to very specific locations and it costs money in the very beginning. So part of the procedure in the beginning of the game is, is you decide which of these locations you're going to and everyone has to pay the money up front to get there. And then uh, something may happen on the ship and maybe we'll, we'll hold a little bit off for that for the first session report, because that's actually kind of a funny story. Uh, as far as my regions go, I was pretty excited. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My own process kind of goes like what was here. You know, I like the idea of fallen civilizations. And I think in almost all the stuff I write, that's kind of what my stories stem from. So I decided what was going on and I was like, oh, it would be cool if. Uh, there was this one thing and I heard someone use, or I read someone use the word uh, tumulus and I had no idea what that meant uh, until I looked it up. And then I was like, Oh, what if, what if there was this massive tumulus that had all of these barrels inside it? And then it had something crazy on the top, like a giant statue that's slowly sinking into the top. And I like scratched off a stick figure drawing and sent it to our personal artist, Craig Brasco, craigbrasco.com. And he actually drew a really cool picture I was really excited about that. The regions themselves, I put a, some effort into just a couple of them. I didn't do like all of them. I probably have 10 or 12 as well. But the way uh, I'm not an, on an island, so it can't be like the characters are going to be able to go around and come in wherever they want. They're going to have to start in just a few regions. So I really put most of my work into those regions. And then 
two dungeons, just like Eric said, and then the rest I'll make up. But an interesting thing that I found is people didn't really explore in mine either, just like they didn't in Eric's region because they went straight to these dungeons that I kind of focused on. Whereas Jose's dungeon was deeper. What we really did is got to involved in exploring hexes in this large uh, barrel or monument area, which was, helped us create these hex exploration rules where the differences between traveling through a hex compared to exploring a hex and then making those hexes become more civilized as it goes, which I thought was a really cool thing that happened. Jose, do you want to talk any more about if you did that purposely in your design choice or did it end up being that way because of the ways that the characters or the players actually decided to uh, adventure in your region? Uh, I'm glad you came back to me because I wanted to also mention one other thing too before I go into that. Jason and Eric have both run many, many hex crawls. Uh, they're pretty, you know, they've done it a lot. Uh, Eric uh, and and him, uh, Eric has written essentially a hex crawl with uh, uh, the treasure vaults of Zadabad. So he, they're both very familiar with it. This is really, honestly, my first one. I ran Stonehell, which is a dungeon crawl, and I had a town, but nothing happened. So this is really my first one. So I wanted to preface that. So when I when I built it, I I I did the thing. Eric Eric said I wouldn't have time to build a bunch of dungeons and all this stuff. That's what I started to do. I started. I got into Dungeonographer, another uh, Inkwell Ideas uh, product uh, like Hexographer. I got into Dungeonographer and I started designing all my mounds. I did like twelve or fifteen mounds, and then I I started in on creating uh, my my dungeon as you guys my dungeon location. My idea was, as I said, it was going to be a desert area, and I wanted a uh, a big red ziggurat on the edge of the. Um, on the edge of the desert that kind of led into the rest of the desert. The thing is on my map, it, it's about what, four or five hexes from the shore. So it's a good clip. And so they <laughs> didn't want to go all the way there. So it led them to just exploring. And so on my charts, they have a chance when they're in this area of finding uh, these burial mounds, which really it's the same. I, I was like, I don't want to do barrel mounds like everyone else. So I didn't do barrel mounds, but it's essentially the same concept. But I found that I made them too, uh, they weren't deep enough. They weren't, they weren't, uh, there wasn't enough to explore. So they'd go in, they'd hit it and they'd explore it and they'd be right back out. So there was not enough meat on each of them. So I didn't do it on purpose. Um, it, all of this is really me taking the things that I've been talking out of my ass about with you guys who are experienced hex crawlers and trying to make them work. Uh, that was just a fortunate happenstance that they decided to do some exploration and I was able to use those uh, burial mounds, but I found that I'm going to have to expand them for the next session so that each one provides a little bit more, a little bit more meat per encounter so that I'm not blasting through four or five of them each session because then I won't be able to keep up as, as Eric said. I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed the sessions in yours though. I mean, it, it felt, it actually felt more like a hex crawl than my sessions did because, um, People just went basically right to the dungeon and it was close enough. So I think, um, you know, I guess there's, I don't know, it's just beginner's luck or what, What? but you, it was, Excellent. it was really good. So don't change a thing. Yeah. I, oh, well, I appreciate that. And then and one other thing I did, I did do, sorry, I'll, I'm no, no sorry, uh, Jason, but one thing I did do is I tried to add some, a chart where it wasn't just finding a barrel. Like they had a chart where they found, uh, they had an encounter where they saw a, an animal, basically a poisoned animal and they, interacted with the uh, the scene where the animal was feeding off some of the local uh, flora 
and was able to recover from it. So they discovered in my session that there is a, a, a plant that you can use to offset the effects of poison. So I have a chart for that kind of stuff too. And and they did, they found a couple of those. They didn't bite on all of them. There was a really good one that they didn't bite on. They saw a uh, an animal getting attacked and they ignored it, but there, <laughs> it, it was good. It was good. Yeah, it was a cool session and it's and it felt very exploratory and kind of went into that we've talked about in the past XP for exploration. And because we were getting rewards, there was no reason for us to continue and to go straight to the dungeon. I mean, we were still getting some gold pieces because we were checking out the small barrier mounds. And I'm not sure it's bad to have a bunch of them, but like you, sometimes you might be able to get away with theater of the minding those and not having to have an actual map so we could get through that way. But I think let's, let's actually get into our first session AP report and uh, I'll give a little premise to the idea. So we came up with this idea and uh, I should say at first that we are not just GMs in the forlorn shores. We're also players and we try to keep our own region separate, even though it's all on the same roll 20, we archive it each time when we're going in and out. So the other GMs, don't, I mean, we're going to have some knowledge of things that we've discussed, but we don't bring them up and we're waiting for actual players to come up with things to expand or their own ideas. So as, but I mean, when we're actually like exploring something, we're playing, you know, I mean, I'm playing as hard as I can play. It's not like I'm holding back or anything like that. But in the very first session, it was called session zero. And uh, someone told me it was some sort of mockery, but I'm not sure about that because <laughs> anyway, we, we went with Eric as he's the, uh, the grandfather of the forlorn shores and Jose and I are just like the young, he's the Titan and we're the young gods that are going to kill him later and steal all those ideas. Uh, it was me, Jose and John bird, <laughs> a guy who plays with us a lot. My buddy, I talk about a lot and Eric was running and we decided to go to the hedge maze. So I guess from here, Eric, why don't you take it? Sure. Yeah. So the one of the two dungeons that I laid down and the only one that was new um, that I wasn't recycling was this hedge maze. And um, I developed it in a previous campaign, kind of, and added some stuff to it and um, kind of fleshed it out. But anyway, it's it's mystical, magical hedge maze. And nobody knows why it's there, but it's very weird and it's very tall. And um, so the guys wanted to go check it out Um, from a procedural standpoint. It's kind of the way that um, it's kind of like the, the, the low level place to go. Right. Because it's very close to where. As uh, Jason talked about before, we had this mechanic in the game where there is some shipping going on. There are people in this town, although we don't have adventures in the town, it's there and there's things going on. One of the things going on is there's regular travel that you can book passage on, but they're only taking you where they're going to go. So you can't go wherever you want until you get higher level. And this is the way that we're kind of gating off sections of of our realms. There's nothing stopping a player from buying a ship and going wherever they want except the money to buy the ship, which they're not going to get until they're higher level. So um, there's ways like that to give complete player agency, but at the same time, realistically limit them because where this ship drops you off, it's three hexes, which is if you're, if you guys don't buy horses, like my players never do, even though I tell them to do it all the time, (laughs) um, it takes you all damn day to get there. So, um, so it's a good day of hex crawling after you're dropped off by the ship. And then, um, you know, you come back and they'll pick you up. And so this is within that three hex uh, zone of where the ship drops you off. And uh, so we did we do a little bit of hex crawling. I don't, hey, I don't want to interrupt you, but I don't want you to forget the part about the actual ship uh, rules of how that goes and what happened. Oh, yeah. Great. So so in, in our in our design conversations, as we were talking about and I was 
trying to tell these guys about the gamification of these, the, the travel. Anyway, it was like, well, do we roll for wandering encounters? And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's, that's going to get difficult. Cause then we got to figure out travel rates on the water. Let's just make one roll for what happens or what could happen during any, um, ship transport, um, scene, I guess, if you will, to, to, since we're talking session zero and story game <laughs> stuff. Um, and, and so it's, Mostly the answer is nothing. On a D12, you have to roll 11 or a 12. So, of course, the first session, Hobbs rolls a 12. And and that's major mishap. And the major mishap that happened was um, – uh, let's see, I actually pulled this up. It was plague, scurvy, dysentery, or some other even worse disease strikes the ship. All aboard must save versus poison or suffer things, right? And it's like ability damage that lasts until they pass that save. So every session, Hobbs had a character, was Jebediah. Um, was his character and now every session that he plays he's got to make a saving throw in the beginning of the session to see if he shook off then we decided it was scurvy um because that was funny we don't know why wait way better than dysentery yeah i don't know uh... and uh and so he's still in seven sessions yet to make that <laughs> save and so this guy is still walking around with scurvy um and what's funny is he went to that location that jose just talked about with the magical lines <laughs> and he never put two and two together so uh <laughs> But uh, but those are the kind of great things. And so now that's like a thing. It's a story, right? I mean, we're going to remember Jebediah had scurvy forever. And um, um, it's really emergent, emergent gameplay and emergent storytelling. Um, I just listened to uh, uh, Hobbs's latest uh, or no, the um, the thing you did with Matt, the uh, Uncle Matt's D&D and okay. uh, Edwin's quote about discovering the story together, which uh, I thought was great, right? Because I'm not telling you the story. We're not making the story together because that's boring too. We might as well be around a campfire with marshmallows. It's a game, right? <laughs> which is bad, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I like that's not what we're doing, right? So, I mean, we yeah. can do both those things, but that's not what we're doing right. here. We're playing a game and that's like, you know, so to me, if it's not... If, we can do all those things. We can, we can, you know, <laughs> sing Kumbaya too, but we're not playing D and D if we're doing that. So, um, so it's a game and there's games have rules and these are the things that happen. And, and, and I, I thought it was great. So that's the kind of thing that's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, eventually he's going to have to try and do something about that and uh, maybe even, you know, drive an adventure to go seek out a cure. Like he, like we go back and get those limes or something. And seriously, I mean, it's not like a small thing. He's got like, Instead of average stats, he's got like negatives on three of his physical attribute stats. It's not like a small thing. He's heavily affected by this, and I don't know how he's still alive. So <laughs> anyway, continue. Blind luck. Um, yeah, so so it was great. We had a little bit of um, – and I'm running uh, most of my – aside from changing like the movement points and or movement and miles per day to movement points, I'm running mostly rules as written Moldvay. So um, if you roll things in the wilderness, it can be really tough. It could be like 300 goblins. Um really deadly stuff. So luckily no one's died, but I'm also using reaction rolls too and distance and all those things too, that a lot of people forget. And I want to highlight that because a lot of, a lot of GMs in my experience and myself included, when they're, when they're rolling a random encounter, they, and it's not planned out and they don't have it scripted and they haven't thought about it and they get a result. They're just like, okay, it's a fight. Right. And then that's just what, it, and then it's just immediately combat. And that's just not, you're selling yourself short because it's it's a lot more that can happen to that. It makes it boring. It makes kind of gives D&D the bad name. It makes it real railroady, all those things. And it's not really how the game was intended. If you read the rules as written, you get a reaction role pretty much with anything. In fact, there's very few monsters in the Moldvay book that if you read the description, attack on site, right? Mm-hmm. Um, somebody's going to go and like fact check me on that. And it turns out 80% of that way. But I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, you know, actually the reaction, reaction roles in there. So, um, 
there's a good chance that 300 goblins are going to be afraid of you and not attack you. So those kinds of things happen. Um, get to the dungeon, and then it's you know, it's not really hex anymore. It's just a regular dungeon. I think it's cool. Other players, maybe we'll talk about that more in depth later. Uh, and the guys, they raided a few areas. Um, Jose's character got Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago, got eaten <laughs> by a green slime. Um, they found they ran away from some from some some ghouls after grabbing some of their treasure, which is great old school stuff, right? They broke into a mausoleum inside the hedge maze. That is like a bunch of these mausoleums. Turns out it's like this old burial ground. Ghouls come out of the ground, and um, the players win initiative. And they're like, well, they're in the ground, so I'm going to grab this treasure and run. And I rolled randomly what treasure they grabbed, and they grabbed a, a, a magic shield. So level one characters ran from the fight, magic shield. And that's like, to me, that's like old school as old school gets. And then they knew that there were ghouls in there. And when they came back, they you'd think they would have come back prepared, but they didn't three sessions later. And they still came back with no cleric, no holy water, no plan whatsoever, just fight. So, um, But, you know, hey, that's the, the things that, that can or can't be. And, you know, players can take advantage of or not. And that's the point of the hex crawl and the emergent gameplay. Yeah, it was uh, it was awesome. Jose, you got uh, 30 seconds to any anything you want to say about that first session. Um, it was it was a good session. Yeah, my character got melted. Uh uh, I will say about it, it being a game is it's really it is really fun to just let the dice fall and once as a GM you let go of the fact that some encounters may be too big for the players they if they stick around they're going to die and if they do stick around they all die once you let go of that fact let those things happen your game takes on a level of realism and your characters will take on more of an investment in what they're doing. And they're going to have, I think they're going to have more fun once, once, once you, once you kind of use that methodology and let go of being scared of letting the dice fall where they may. It, it was, it's, it's a fun experience running a hex crawl for sure. Amen and preach brother. That's what I say. All right. So we want to stay around the 40 minute mark and we're pretty much there. So our Jose, are we going to have a, uh, like an email on audio dungeon or what's the deal? We are. Um, and since you mentioned, I'm going to really quickly say uh, I've set up a website called audiodungeon.com. It's right now it's really bare, but the whole site exists as a place to give this podcast a home. We're going to do other things as well, but it's there so that we have a place to host Hex Talk. And I'm going to set up an email address and we'll get social media set up. And we'll get ways on the site and and just through the various G plus channels so that you can contact us with questions and information. And when you go to the site, Audio Dungeon, to look for Hex Talk and you see the amazing logo of the Mimic with headphones, that was also done by our uh, artist friend, Craig Brasco, craigbrasco.com. Uh, so when you see that, you'll know who did it. Awesome. So hopefully you'll have, we'll put something in the notes of how to get a hold of us. Uh, as always, you can reach me on Twitter at Hobbs indeed, or at OSR and Hobbs or the Googles, Jason Hobbs. What about you, Eric? Uh, you just come to my house, uh, 347 Cedar road. Um, <laughs> please send, uh, shit bags through the mail to Eric. Cause that would be awesome. You know, and that's not my actual address. So please don't send hate mail to whoever lives at that. Cedar Cause that's road. his mom's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Eric Hoffman on, uh, Google. Jose. Uh, you can find me on Google as well. I like to take these uh, moments more seriously. Um, so definitely <laughs> yeah, find me on Google. That's just because he forgot his ICQ number. All right. <laughs> that's right. What, one ninety five nine nine six. So we've uh, been wondering if Hex Talk is the best possible name for this show. So what we would like to do is have you guys toss out some better names 
and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, and I had a blast and it was awesome to have you guys on. Anyone have any uh, last words of wisdom, Jose? Um, something like Hexapalooza or uh, Detroit Hex City. Something something with a little joie de vivre. <laughs> Eric, what about you? <laughs> uh, it, that's Japanese. Uh, the complete Hex talk was my... Was my uh... My, my, my guess there. Oh, are we dropping them all of them? I thought it was going to be uh, Hex Talk, White Box, Hex Box or something. Yeah. Yeah. All advanced right. Hex Talk, the amazing Hex Talk, the uh, incredible Hex Talk. <laughs> Hex Talk Diceless. <laughs> Fourth edition. All right. So, Jose, I think you should. I, I got nothing left to say in this goddamn thing. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.